Good morning. Is this the pulpit now? Is that what happened? I remember the pulpit. Um, well, my name is Chandra Coates, and I am co-pastor to 5th and 6th grade, also known as FSM. And um, I am a fourth-generation Pomona First Baptist member. And so that's why I was laughing about the pulpit, because I have these great memories of being in here with the organ and the pulpit and liturgy, which we'll talk about later. I miss the liturgy. But um, <laughs> it's so great to be here. And um, I, being in here is so nostalgic for me, because um, when I was growing up, I remember sitting with my grandparents and my parents and singing hymns and all these great traditions that um, some people in my generation didn't grow up with. But um, it's very nice for me um, because that's how I learned and grew close to the Lord. Um, So being at PFB is kind of like a two-way street for me because um, I've grown up in this church. My, um, My mother grew up in this church. My grandmother grew up in this church. Um, but I'm also what I would like to call, um, obviously adopted. My, uh, my mother is a six-foot-tall blonde bombshell, and my dad is, um, a red-haired, uh, I think he's a little shorter than my mom, not quite six feet, but I obviously don't look a lot like them, <laughs> and so, um, I, I, sometimes I felt a little bit displaced because of that. Um, but I have so many great memories of my grandmother, Jean Carver. I think she's here. That's what my generation calls a shout out. So, uh, <laughs> shout out to my grandma. Um, <laughs> and, um, some of you may know that my grandmother loves to make cookies. And how, how many of you have had my grandma's cookies? Many of you. And I remember going over for a visit one time, and I could just smell these cookies. They were freshly baked, and I was just, you know, waiting to eat it. And as soon as I got into the kitchen, my grandma said, oh, no, Chandra, and to the rest of her grandkids, she said, those cookies are for the people. And I was like, who are the people? Who are these people? I'm a person. But these cookies were for the people who were in my grandma and grandpa's Thursday night Bible study. And so I remember just pushing my nose up to the counter and smelling them because I couldn't eat them. Because everybody knows that you can't steal from the people because God is watching. So (laughs) I would just smell them and... um, It was not so much about the cookies that time, but this idea of the people, the church people. And um, now I am a church person, and I have my own version of the people. Um, So actually, let me go ahead and um, dive into the scripture here. Um, I'm going to be reading from Ruth 2, verses 5 through 11. And so um, this is when Boaz meets Ruth in the field, when she comes to glean in the field. So Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back with Moab from Naomi, with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. 
She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. And then I'm actually going to skip a little bit. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Down to verse 10. And then um, she was so surprised by Boaz's kindness to her. She said, at th- it says, at this she bowed down to her f- with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, why have you found such favor with me? I am a foreigner. Boaz replied, I have been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Well, um, although I'm a good church girl and, you know, I, I like the hymns, I miss the pulpit, Glenn. Um, <laughs> I like the organ. Um, I still need to be able to reach people who didn't grow up with those traditions. On a weekly basis, I have to say, hey, you guys, this is called a book. To my 9 and 10-year-olds, this is called a book. We have to open it and read the words and... Um, they're not used to that. Some of them are, but um, they really are so digital now that we have to explain the Bible and these traditions to have a purpose to bring them closer to God. And um, I just want to share about another experience I had that helps me relate to Ruth. Um, I remember my mother got remarried when I was younger, and my last name changed to my, uh, my dad's last name. I call him my dad. And I remember being so horrified. I went to Sunday school, and they put a visitor badge on me, on me, a fourth-generation PFB member. And I remember feeling so sad, and I said, nobody knows who I am. Don't they know my grandma makes the cookies for the people? (laughs) And... um, I felt like nobody knew who I belonged to, like Ruth. Um, So um, something that really stuck in my mind this this year when I was teaching this to the children is um, who remembers who Boaz's mother was? Does anybody know? It was Rahab who had also left a culture that was non-Israelite, and she had to learn new cultures and new traditions and maybe a new language in order to get to know this God who had saved her and spared her family. And she also had to mourn um, people she lost and culture. And when Ruth came to encounter Boaz, she was in mourning, so he is very sympathetic to that. And Boaz was very well established, so he didn't have to be nice to her. He had privilege. Um, So in closing, I would just like to ask you, who are your people, your oikos? Um, I know that your your service might be focused more on legacy, but it's never too late. It's never too late to see someone in my generation or somebody that you can take under your wing and mentor. Um, And I'll just close in prayer now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship with these great people this morning. And I just pray that you would... um, Show us who our people are, because you've also taken us under your wing as your people. And in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys. Jesse Hunter. Hello. Jesse Hunter, pastor in fifth and sixth grade. Um, I love being part of FSM. If you heard about it, um, 
just a bless to be a part of those students' lives and see how God's working through them. Um, if you've ever been to a 945 service, you've seen um, my beautiful wife, Samantha. Um, yes, I'm 30. She just turned 30. On, I'm 31. She just turned 30 on the 10th. And uh, yes, we love it. We love 30. Um, FSM, we've been going through this story, and it's just been awesome. Um, so many great story, great people, so many great stories. I know, uh, like uh, Gideon or Solomon, but one that's really um, caught my attention, I've really stayed with me these last few years, is Moses. Um, we're gonna, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus, but um, don't worry, we're not going through the whole thing. I don't have that much time. Um, it's impossible to fit those chapters in this time, but we'll be in there, and particularly of the story, the conversation at the burning bush with the Lord and Moses. Um, leading up to that point is uh, Moses had to flee Egypt because um, he killed an Egyptian. He was, the Egyptian was beating an Israelite. Uh, Pharaoh found out, so he fleed to Midian and met up with Jethro, saved his daughters at the well, met up with Jethro, married his daughter, um, had a son, became a shepherd. And while he was shepherding, uh, was curious, saw the burning bush. And this is the conversation, if you uh, turn to your Bibles, um, chapter 3, verse 10. Before we get into that, there is um, the problem. Sometimes in life we feel like we are faced with an impossible task. Uh, impossible uh, job, impossible goal, an impossible mission. And we find uh, that sometimes it's, uh, we feel alone or we're scared or um, if any of your families ever heard this, maybe this is a common catchphrase in your families is, do I have to do that? Um, maybe it's like, go clean your room. Do I have to do that? And it feels like an impossible task, but kids, cleaning your room is not an impossible task. It might seem like that because you, you've left it so long, but it's not. But let's go um, hear uh, God tell Moses what seems like an impossible task and how God has provided for Moses during this task. Chapter 3, verse 10. So now go. You are to bring my people out of Egypt. God says, you're the guy. I want you to go, and I want you to take my people out of Egypt. Moses responds, verse 11, who am I that I should go? I'm just a shepherd. I'm nobody. I shouldn't be doing this. God's like, okay. Verse 12, I will be with you and this will be assigned to you. God provided Moses a sign, said, I'm with you, Moses. You're not going alone. Moses' response, verse 13, suppose I go and say, the God of my father has sent me what do I say your name is? What if they ask your name? God's like, it's fair. Verse 14, I am who I am. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right then and there, God provided a name, an address, a phone number, an email. I'm just kidding. He didn't provide that. It wasn't, it wasn't there. But he did provide Moses with a name and everything and then right after those verses, um, he said, God mapped out the whole plan. He said, Moses, this is how you're going to do it. Verse 16 through 22, he says, step-by-step step, Fran, this is what I want you to do, and this is how I want you to do it. 
And then at the end of, uh, in verse 22, he says, I'm with you. I have got this. I've got you covered. Moses responds again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? Sometimes when you're talking to people, you're like, how are you going to believe me? Why do you even want to listen to me? God says, he provides miraculous signs. At that point, he provides miraculous signs, and he gives them three miraculous signs. One, uh, the snake. Throw down the, uh, his shepherd's crook, and it turns into a snake. Second one was, he provided a, um, he puts, Moses puts his hand in the cloak, comes out leprosy. Third one is Moses sticks his staff in the water and turns it to blood, the now river into blood. And I think, you know, if you had those miraculous signs, obviously someone's going to be watching and listening at that point. When your hand comes out, leprosy, not leprosy, or snake, or the entire river turns into blood. Someone's obviously going to be listening and paying attention. Verse 10, and this is where um, I connect a little bit with Moses. It says, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past or since you have talked to your, since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I connected with that because I'm not slow, per se, as Moses was to speech and tongue, but God gave me this connection with my brain and my lips. And sometimes words get jumbled and they keep I, the processor is so quick sometimes they get jumbled, just like the 10 freeway at rush hour. You know, they come, it's like, everybody's like breaking, and my words do that. Or I have uh, people in my life that say, Jesse, just because you went to college does not give you the right to use the big words. You actually have to know how to use them and in which context to use them. And sometimes it's very helpful to have that. So I've connected really well with Moses and said, I'm slow to speech and tongue. I can't, I can't speak. God says, okay. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Who gave man his mouth? Who gave man, or who makes man deaf or mute? He says, now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And God provides words and how to speak and teaches him. And this is my favorite response from Moses. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Please send someone else to do it. And what I did is I went in and um, looked at the translation and dug in a little bit to the translation. And what Moses was saying there is, do I have to? Do I have to do this? And much like us, when we, re- when we see that impossible task or when we don't want to do something, it's like, do I have to do this? I don't want to do it. And then God, at this point, is extremely happy and joyful of Moses and everything that he's done and said so far. Um, No, actually, he's burning with anger. Verse 14, he said, I'm burning with anger. And he's like, fine, I will give you Aaron. I will provide a person for you to speak, but you're still going. You're still doing it. Take your shepherd's crook and go. And God provides a person for him to speak through. And applying it, it's hard. We get that task and we feel like it's possible. So go ahead. Step one, freak out. Go ahead and freak out. And then after a few days or a few moments, you realize it's not helping. Then you can proceed to step two. Step two, trust in God that he will provide everything you need. He will provide that person to speak for you. He will provide financially. He will provide in any way he can to help you succeed in that task. He's not sending you out alone. He is there with you and going with you. 
third step to go, to actually take that step to do it. I know in my life, um, I have people providing for me. I have a wife that takes care of me. Um, she also has a job full-time, takes care of me full-time, which is difficult. Um, it's me. <laughs> Secondly, I have a family, not only um, my mother and father-in-law, I have my own family that um, support us so well. Um, it's overwhelming at times, and it's a blessing. And the third thing is, um, I have a God in heaven that loves me with all the grace and all the mercy that I need to pursue that task and to finish that task, and he provides everything I need. That's it. Well, hey, I love a good parade. My, my whole family loves parades. We have always loved parades. I like watching them on TV, but there is nothing like watching a parade in person, right? We especially love the Rose Parade that happens in Pasadena on New Year's. Anyone ever been able to go in and spend some time with the Rose Parade? So fun. This is one of the most magnificent parades because all the floats are filled with flowers and seeds and plants, everything organic matter. And if you get close enough to each float, they even smell good because they are created with these natural wonders that um, are vibrant in color and um, it's amazing to see the artistry come together. Well, a couple of years ago, we were at the Rose Parade, and we had taken um, some of my children that were really small at the time, and one of the floats that came by was sponsored by the Lutherans. It was the Lutheran Hour float. Now, on this float, they had created a giant Jesus that came parading down the Rose Parade. Now, most of the people that um, we were in the crowd with, they kind of laughed, they snickered a little bit. But I had kids with me who loved Jesus. And my daughter said, Mommy, look, Jesus is in the Rose Parade. He must be really famous. I said, you are right, darling. He is very famous. And Jesus ought to be in the parade. And Palm Sunday is one of those Sundays where we get to celebrate a parade that Jesus got to be in when he very humbly came before us uh, for the people to honor and clap and cheer and celebrate just like we do in a parade when the floats come by or the, par- or the marching bands go by and we cheer and we, uh, we celebrate them and we just acknowledge that uh, that is something to applaud and look forward to. So as we think about Palm Sunday, and you think back to that day when Jesus came uh, so humbly uh, into uh, the, the area on the Mount of Olives, and the people began to wave their palms, would you have grabbed a palm? Would you have run and grabbed a palm and stood there waving it just as they did before Jesus, their Messiah? He was someone that they were um, ready to, to acknowledge. He was worthy of honor and praise. And so they took these palms. Now, these were ready-made. These were nature-made, ready-to-go ways for people to uh, praise and honor uh, the God before them, to honor and celebrate Jesus. Now, this was something that God had created, and he'd been using palms as praise for quite a long time. If we go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 2340 says, On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, from willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. 
Now, this was a command that God had given the people for the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the third festival where God had commanded the people to go into Jerusalem and that they were to Uh, acknowledge that God had brought them out of slavery, that God had protected them, that God had provided for them. And so this was a a great time of feasting and celebrating. It was also to celebrate the last harvest. And so it was a, a time of abundance and provision. And one of the things that happened for the Feast of Tabernacles is you were to move out of your house. You were actually supposed to create a three walled structure. And on top of this structure, you were to place leafy boughs. Often these were palm leaves that they placed over these tabernacles or these booths. And they wanted it to um, actually be not real tight, but to be able to see the stars shining in the sky. If you look above you, you can see the lights and imagine that those would have been the stars that you could see overhead in the sky at night. To remember that when Moses, as Jesse was talking about, led the people out of slavery in Egypt, and they had to camp and depend on God for his provision, that they could remember that story. They could claim that as their heritage and remember that they served a God that loved them so much that God would provide for them, that God would be someone who watched over them and protected them. And because of that, God deserved their praise. And so early on, God commanded people to take those palms and to remember them. Now, on Palm Sunday, the people gathered, and they took those palms as their Savior came riding on a donkey. This was a very humble parade as Jesus began his way from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem. Now, the city was filled with people for Passover, and this was another festival where people remembered God's provision and God's protection of them. And so as Jesus came and he would become that Passover lamb, the people waved the palm branches. The scripture tells us the next day, the great crowd, that a great crowd had come for the festival and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, palm trees, these were a great resource to the people. They, they were used almost in, in its entirety to care, for, to provide and protect the people. Now, date palms, which is what was all over in the region, they, dates were one of the main staples of food for the people. Now, the sap from a date tree could also be made into wine. The fibers of the leaves could be woven into ropes and riggings for boats. The tall stem of the trunks could be used for lumber, and the palm leaves could be woven together to make baskets, bags, mats, brushes. Everything in a palm could be used. And so as people took these palm fronds and they waved them before Jesus, it was more than just a grand parade for their rabbi, their leader, their teacher, their friend, their mentor, their Lord, their savior. These palms were a symbol of freedom to the people. Uh, The palm tree was God's provision for them, God's provision for the people, and to remind them that God would provide for them even in dark days, that God called the people to praise him in provision and when times were dark, that God was worthy of that praise no matter what was going on. 
So when Palm Sunday came, this was actually the day that people would select the lamb for the Passover. This was the the Sunday that this would happen. And Jesus became that lamb that God selected for the Passover, this perfect lamb that God would use to free us from our sins. So all of this was happening with God giving them provision of freedom as the people acknowledged that Jesus was the one to free them, even as he provided and protected for them. So Palm Sunday is a day of praise. Now, hey, it is easy to praise God when the sun is shining, right? When our kids are getting good grades, when we've gotten a promotion at work, those are easy times to praise God. But what happens when the storm clouds roll in? when the grades start to fall, when the pink slips are handed out, and we do not feel like waving a palm and saying Hosanna. And that is when our praise becomes a sacrifice. It becomes a sacrifice of praise that is very precious in the eyes of God. You see, these are the times that we, with our faith, proclaim that we believe God to be true, that he is still working and that he still cares. Even in times of sorrow, in times of joy, and in times of sorrow, that our God will protect us and provide for us. It teaches us to be joyful and thankful regardless of our circumstances. And it prepares us to be people who can still serve God to be God's hands and God's feet in the midst of a world who desperately needs to see that. It takes us beyond our present circumstances and our praise is something that lets us see the immense possibilities that God has for our own lives and for this world. So what do you do when the world seems like a dark place? When your husband has walked out on you, when your child has a terminal illness, when your hopes and your dreams do not go the way that they planned. We still praise a good and gracious God who, as Tomiko just told us, can bring something out of nothing. That that God is still alive and working and is able and worthy to be praised. That we can still wave our palm front. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Praise teaches us to turn our eyes onto God and get our eyes off of our circumstances. Now, the Bible also talks about a time that there will be another place where all nations and all people and all tribes who claim Jesus as their Lord and God will one day again grab their palms and wave them victoriously before their great God. On this day, we will become the parade and we will surround Jesus and once again, we will wave our palm fronds. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you are a God who is worthy of praise. And wherever we are in our lives right now, 
God, we acknowledge that you are worthy of praise, whether we are in the storm or whether we are in a season of joy. We want to be a people who can bring a sacrifice of praise to you, for you are worthy. And together we proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. We exalt you as our Lord, as our God, and as our King on this Palm Sunday. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So it's good to see you this morning. Will you turn with me to your study outlines? I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) It's so exciting to be here with you this morning. And it's great that finally from ages two and a half to our senior saints, we are all studying the same thing. It's awesome to be on the same passages together. And I realize they call this the story, but I prefer to think of it as God's story. God's, the sweeping epic adventure of a God who created extravagantly, who loves extravagantly, who provides extravagantly, and who forgives extravagantly. The amazing thing is that you and I were created for God's story. He invites us into this adventure together. So I want to ask you, how are you doing keeping up? Raise your hands if you have read the uh, first 15 chapters. How are you doing? Oh, good. Okay, anyone skipping ahead? (laughs) Well, let's do a lightning fast review of the story from Adam to Asa. But before we blow through, I want to ask you, who is it that you identify with in the past 14 weeks? Go ahead and take your study outline and just write it in on page three. Who is it, even if you're not a note taker, who is it that you identify with most? Okay, are you ready? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Made for God's enjoyment, the sin of Adam brought death into the world. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing. Jealous Cain became the world's first murderer. Noah, a righteous man, obeyed God and saved a remnant that would repopulate the earth. By the way, the Noah movie that's currently out does not follow the biblical account. But the great thing is that it sent so many people to check out the book of Genesis. That's a great thing. The rainbow symbolizes God's promise to never flood the entire earth again. Adam, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Sarah, the beautiful, takes matters into her own hands with disastrous results. Ishmael is born, and years later, though, the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, is born. Abraham is willing to obey God and sacrifice his son, but God intervenes. Isaac is spared, but some 2,000 years later, God does not spare his only son. In fact, I think the story could be written around John 3.16, which you see up on the screen. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Rebecca agrees to marry Isaac sight unseen. She gives birth to twins Esau and Jacob. Esau foolishly sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. How often do we focus on immediate needs instead of the eternal? Jacob, the deceiver, flees for his life. And he himself is deceived into working seven years for the older, plain daughter, Leah, instead of the beautiful, younger daughter, Rachel. How Jacob could marry and make love to the wrong woman is still a mystery to me. Leah has many sons. Rachel is barren. Then Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph, who becomes Jacob's favorite. Joseph's jealous brothers sell him into slavery, and God uses Joseph's faithfulness through what unfairly transpires to raise him to second-in-command, leading the nations through seven years of famine and reconciling him with his brothers and finally reuniting him with his dad. Moses is born and miraculously saved when he's drawn out of the Nile by the princess who adopts him. 
Reared in the palace, Moses lets his anger control him. Another murder occurs, and Moses flees to the wilderness, where he spends 40 years tending sheep. But God is not done with Moses. And if you are here this morning, God is not done with you yet either. God has something for you to do still. God raises Moses to a place of leadership, and along with Aaron, Moses calls for the release of God's people. Ten plagues strike the land of Egypt. Only at the final terrible plague, the visit of the death angel, does Pharaoh agree to let God's people go. But Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues the Israelites. They are up against the Red Sea, and God does what only God can do, the miraculous, and opens the sea for the Israelites to go through. As Pharaoh's army pursues, they are drowned as God sends the sea back to where it belongs. Disobedience brings wilderness wanderings. Moses gets the Ten Commandments, which the Israelites promptly break by building a golden calf to worship. Amazing that they would leave Almighty God, whom they have seen do wonders for something made with human hands. But how often do we worship earthly things rather than the God of heaven and earth? Moses dies, Joshua leads, Jericho falls, the sin of Achan brings defeat, the judges rule Israel, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Ruth's loyalty is rewarded when she marries Boaz and her offspring are in the line of Christ. Hannah prays for a son and gives birth to Samuel, who is raised in the house of the Lord. The Israelites demand a king rather than submitting to the king of kings. Saul reigns, but is consumed by jealousy for a shepherd king, David, God's anointed, who refuses for 15 years to take matters in his own hands until, as a king, he sees a woman he shouldn't have and does take matters into his own hands, becoming not only an adulterer, but a murderer as well. David repents and is forgiven, but the consequences remain. The sword never leaves his house. Solomon becomes king when David dies, and when God gives him the gift of asking for whatever his heart desires, he asks for wisdom to rule his people well. Solomon, the wisest and richest man, builds a magnificent temple for God. But Solomon allows his lust for women to draw his heart away from God. The kingdom divides northern and southern. A few good kings reign, but more bad kings draw Israel away from the one true God, Yahweh. And the saga continues. Through August 31st, we will be looking at the story. And as we do, I want you to think of where is your place in this God's story. God invites us into his story, and his word demonstrates to us how much we need Jesus Next Sunday at Fairflex, the message of God's love demonstrated in Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, the sinless, perfect life, and his substitutionary death and resurrection will be proclaimed in the very winsome way that Pastor Glenn has. We invite you to bring your oikos there. You know, my husband is really great at this. He has a large sphere of influence among those who are not yet Christ followers. So go ahead in your study outline and write, who in my oikos needs to hear the good news? And as you write those names, I want you to think about inviting them and how you're going to invite them. And I want you to circle their names and remind yourself that this is why we are here. We are here to share the good news that God created us, that God loves us, that God draws us into relationship with himself. And uh, because I'm a children's pastor, I do fun things like this. As you leave, there are baskets with Swedish fish in them. They kind of remind me of Pastor Glenn, too, and the winsome way that he has of sharing Christ with those that we love. But would you take one of these and use it as a reminder to invite people to 
the Easter at Fairplex next Sunday, 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock. We want to see you there, and please bring your friends. There are so many people that won't come to church, but they will come to the Fairplex, and they will hear the good news that God loves them, that God created them to live in relationship with him. So one for family while supplies last. Would you take one as you leave? Thank you so much, and I'd like to invite you to pray with me in our few seconds that remain. Father God, we bow before you, and we acknowledge our dependence on you. Apart from you, O oh Lord, we can do nothing, but thank you that you call us into relationship with yourself to be forgiven and to live for you. Thank you for the people that are here who love you and know you. Thank you for those who are learning to love you and know you. And we pray that next week, many people will come to learn to know you and love you through your great son, Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, Pastor Glenn wanted me to talk with a British accent this morning since I'm on the British Commonwealth team. And I told him, No way. No such luck. But I do want to tell you a God story this morning. Um, It was a number of years ago, I was working for an organization that believed that God's Word is to go to everywhere in the world. God's story is to be taken to the entire world, even to countries that are closed to the gospel and closed to Bibles and closed to worship and that sort of thing. And so I was taking a small group of people to one of those countries one, uh, one time and We got to the regional office as we would go there to enter this particular country and we would pick up Bibles and we would put them in our suitcases and we would carry them into this country. And so we got to the regional office and the staff there said to me, "Uh, Peter, would you be willing to take some local currency, some cash into this country? And I didn't really think a lot about it. And I said, yeah, why, why do you need that? And they said, well, we're able to print Bibles inside the country, but we need to have the cash to be able to buy paper. And I said, oh, okay. I said, how much cash would I be carrying? And they said, oh, U.S. about $30,000. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, what happens if I get caught? And they said, we don't know. We've never done it before. (laughs) So I put the cash in my briefcase, headed for the airport the next day. And uh, we arrived at this country, and I went into the immigration hall, and I got in line. I am a master, by the way, at being able to find the slowest line. Anybody else like that? Yeah, sure. Anyway, I'm in this line, and I suddenly realize I'm going to be the last person through the immigration desk. So I get up. They stamp my passport. I walk on in to the customs place to pick up my suitcase. I grab it. I turn around, and I realize that I'm the only person left in the customs hall. And there are four, four customs guards with nothing to do but to check me. We prayed in this organization, Lord, you are the one that made blind eyes uh, to see, now make seeing eyes blind. (laughs) And I watched their feet because I didn't want them to see the absolute terror in my eyes. So I was watching their feet to see because I knew if one of them started to turn towards me, This would be an interesting morning. And as I watched and walked, they didn't turn. They didn't move. It was as though they were frozen in place 
and didn't even see me. And I walked through in between them all. Now, I tell that story. It's not a Peter Torrey story. It's a God story. And it's an illustration of one of my favorite stories in God's story, the story of Joshua and Caleb. Because Joshua and Caleb, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 8, as they come out of spying out the land that God wanted them to go in and to take, they said to the children of Israel, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. And they were confident that God would do what he wanted them to do. He would take them and lead them in. But the children of Israel, all they could see were the giants in that land. And as a result, they wasted 40 years of living. Now here's the principle. The principle is really pretty simple. And that is, is that if we do what God wants us to do, he will lead us provide for us, take care of us, and we will have a full and meaningful life, even full of some adventures that we may not really think that we're in for. But if we don't do what God asks us to do, the reverse part of that principle is that we will waste some of our life. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 18, I'm sorry, 29, verse 18, says the same thing, but in a little different way. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Other versions say, where there is no vision, the people perish. And it's the same principle. God speaks to us. He reveals himself to us. He gives us vision. He gives us direction, whether through his word, through prayer, through other believers, through worship, God reveals himself to us, and if we are obedient to that, we will have a full and meaningful life. But if we pay no attention to that revelation, we cast off restraint, we waste life. And that principle applies to us wherever we are in life, whatever stage of life we're in, that principle still applies to us. Now, let me take that and just take a different, slightly different look at it. Because this principle is one of the most important principles for parents and grandparents in all of Scripture, I believe. Because we want our children and our grandchildren to live a full and meaningful life. We don't want them to waste life. And so this principle and teaching this principle that when they have a vision of what God can do in their lives that their life will be meaningful and full is really, really important. Let me suggest three three things that that help, that, that parents and grandparents can do to help their children have a vision. First, get them into the Word of God. Read the Word to them. Don't just read Bible stories. Read the Word to them. Help them to hear the Word of God. Bring them to church. Sunday morning soccer games aren't going to give your grandchildren a great vision of God. But bringing them to church and getting them into the Word will help them get a vision of what God can do in their lives. Second, take them on God adventures. Uh, my wife uh, will take our, our grandchildren on God adventures. One day she took 
our granddaughter, and, and they went out. They ended up in Walmart in a pharmacy area talking to a lady who had some needs, and our granddaughter was able to pray for this lady right there in Walmart. What a wonderful opportunity for her to understand that God can work through her life. Get them on mission trips. If you can't afford to take them on a mission trip, go with them yourself. Take them to an inner city area, do something. But if you have to sacrifice, sacrifice so that they can understand that God is at work in their lives, both here and around the world. Let them know what God has done in your life. Write them letters, write them emails, blog. I wrote my grandkids a book. My poor grandkids got to read a book to find out about what Gramps was about, okay? But communicate what it is that God has done in your life. And oh, one, one last thing. Live out this principle yourself. Wherever you are in life, live it out yourself. When God speaks to you, even if that, that message to you is to go put your lawn sign up or to hand out that, that little invitation, Whatever it is, when God speaks to you, be obedient. Because your choice is to either be obedient and have God give you a full and meaningful and adventuresome life or to waste it away. So which do you want? Do you want God to lead you into that land? I trust so. Let's pray. Father, we would just ask that you would help us to understand the absolute importance of living in obedience to you so that you can lead us and bless us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We look at the topic this morning. Oh, thank you very much, Aaron. When, we, uh, when I consider these last weeks, a number of things have gone through my mind, but I focus back to week number six when the topic was wanderings. The children of Israel were on the edge of going into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. God gave the instruction to choose a spy from each of the 12 tribes to go and to look into the land and see what it was like. And we, many of us know the story. Ten came back with negative reports. And two, Joshua and Caleb came back with positive reports. The Bible tells us in Luke 21 that the world is probably going to just keep getting worse as we go along. That's why God put us here is to make it a better place for sure. But Luke 21 tells us, in those days men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things which are coming upon the earth. It's interesting as we look at the Bible, it talks so much about about not fearing and be anxious for nothing and and do not be dismayed. It just goes on and on all all over Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. But it's ironic in that this is probably the most... probably the greatest command in all of Scripture, if you will, in terms of its repetitiveness, but it's probably the one that you and I might violate by disobeying the most. It's interesting, too, as we look at the Bible, that on one hand, you have all these commands not to fear God, but on the other hand, you have all these promises that God says to fear me. And so look at our verses here this morning, Psalms 25, 14, notice with me here. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. But the loving kindness of the Lord, in Psalms 103, 17, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
And I love what Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. So we have this multiple, these multiple commands not to fear on one hand, and then all of these many commands on the other that say fear God, or God says fear me. I want to suggest this morning real quickly that these two commands are, are related. That if we will, if, that if we keep the second command to fear God, that we will no longer fear man. We will no longer fear circumstances around us. I have a number of fear objects in my life. I don't want to tell you all of them because some of you have warped senses of humor. But <laughs> one of my fears is I really do not like alligators. I've never wrestled one. I've watched Gator Boys before, and I think I could just watching the mechanics, but I would never try it, never try it. But they do cause me to fear. But when I go to the zoo or something, they, don't, I, they aren't a fear object to me any longer because they're in a contained unit. That same, that same word that's used, that, that we use uh, for the word fear, is the same word that, that the Bible uses for fearing God. When we fear a fear object, it's the same word as when we fear God. However, this is not a fear of, of fright. I love in 1 John 4.18 4, where John says, There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear because fear has punishment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. What does the Bible mean when it talks about, about fear? It means this. It means to respect God, to recognize his greatness, to surrender to his power, and to conf- let him conform us into his image and into his likeness. When these spies got into the land, I want you to, if you wouldn't mind looking with me on Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, here's a report that Joshua and Caleb gave, gave the two spies who had the positive report. They said this, Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not Fear who? Them. Do not fear them. But the other, in contrast, the other ten spies said this in Numbers 13, 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And that description of the sons of Anak is spelled out in the next verses, Numbers 13, beginning in verse 32. So they gave out to the sons of Israel this bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. So these sons of Anak are big, big people. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight." Here's the conflict of fears. The ten spies went into the land, they gave a negative report because they feared the people of the land and the circumstances that they saw more than they feared God. God had shown his faithfulness to them over and over and over again over those last 40 years in the wilderness. Probably a two-week journey across the wilderness would have brought them to the promised land, but because I believe they feared man and disobeyed God by doing it, by not fearing God first, God delayed their move into the land. And despite all of this, we read in Deuteronomy that they even got to the point with so much fear that they said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. 
and be subjected to the punishment and to the, the work that we had to do there. I love the upper story perspective in Isaiah 40:22, our final verse. It is he that is God who sets above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We are all grasshoppers, if you will, on the side of God. They chose to focus on the fear objects of the world rather than looking at the great object of fear, which is almighty God himself. So I asked this morning, who are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of Anak in your life and in my life today? And it might be the greatest fear object of all. Maybe you've gotten a bad report from the doctor who says you have a certain amount of time to live. But God is the one who, is, who gives us the strength over every fear in life. Some of us have that fear and trepidation to go witness and tell people about the love of Christ and invite them to things that are important like the fairplex. Someone once put it this way, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. We fear circumstances so much because we fear God so little. I love how Paul said it in Romans 8, for we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so much. What a great testimony it would be for the world to observe Christians living without fear. Lord Jesus, we pause in these moments to thank you, God, for what you have done in our lives and what you mean to each one of us. God, as we think about the Nephilim, uh, the sons of Anak in our lives, whatever those fear objects are, whether they are individuals or whether they are circumstances, Lord, we know that if we reverse that fear object and make you the one whom we fear out of love and respect, the Lord, you will allow us to have the upper story perspective that will put everything in right, in right view. So, Lord, we come to you this morning with hearts that are broken, that surrender to you. And as we come to this table of our Lord right now, God, we pray that you will take this bread and remind us of your great sacrifice for us so that we, in turn, can go and be a sacrifice to this world, a good demonstration of the love of God and love of Christ in us. For these things, we'll pray and thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, <clears throat> I was blessed with a wonderful woman that uh, came into my life, my wife, Jean. And one of the, the things that I had to do um, as we started to kind of uh, work our, our lives together uh, was to give her reign over my closet. Um, because, you know, I had a closet that I shared with no one for so many years, and I just had stuff that just kind of accumulated there over that time span. And uh, one of the first things that she said is, so, you know, I'm going to need some space. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, okay, I've got space. That's all right. The next thing you know, uh, she's going through my closet and pulling out stuff. Now, what is this stuff here? And I said, well, that's a shirt, you know. And she says, well, um, you know, looking at you and looking at your size, I don't think this shirt can fit you. <laughs> I said, well, but you don't understand, Jean. This shirt came with me to America in 1980. Yes, it's a size S. <laughs> uh, but I want to keep it. And she looked at me and said, no, because she'd already formed a pile. To go pile, to stay pile, to think about pile. <laughs> And that one definitely went into the to-go pile. You know, for a lot of us, 
We are involved in uh, relationships. Uh, uh, we tend to hold on to things like I do uh, without any sense of uh, wanting to get rid of them. Today I just want to talk about something, a concept that I just learned about actually through a guy named Henry Cloud. A, a concept called necessary endings. And the, the concept just kind of grabbed me when I first heard of it. Uh, Pastor Glenn shared a video uh, with staff uh, about a couple of months ago. And I tell you, that just, just grabbed me. Because I am a guy that just doesn't like to hurt people. I don't like to end things. I am slow about breaking the hearts of people. And so uh, after learning about this concept from Henry Cloud, and um, I'm no expert on it, I thought I would share a few, few things that comes out of the book of Genesis, chapter 13. Uh, an incident in the life of Abraham that, uh, that helps clarify some of those principles about necessary endings that we all need in our lives uh, to, to, to terminate some of the things that are not working right, to get rid of size S clothes that you no longer need. Uh, and so let's look very quickly at Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 to 9. And the story basically is about Abraham and Lot. The, the story tells us that um, uh, Abraham and Lot uh, lived together they were prospering together. They had a lot of cattle. They had a lot of people around them. Uh, the Bible says, and Abraham and Lot, in the, um, uh, now Lot who had, was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. Verse 5. Abraham and Lot, in the midst of their relationship, were accumulating a lot of things. Uh, they were prospering. But verse 6 tells us, the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great, they were not able to stay together. Sometimes in the midst of, of, of what seems to be a good thing, um, it's really not really working. And sometimes we just need to step back and realize that we get to a point where we can't gain anymore, where we can't grow anymore, where life just kind of stays stunted. Even in the midst of what seems to be right, even in the midst of a closet full of stuff that I really liked, I had to get to a place where I needed to uh, release some stuff. The second thing is that sometimes we stay in relationships longer than we should, and then problems arise. Um, in, in verse 7 it says, And quarreling arose between Abraham's herders and Lot's. And then in addition, it just mentions that Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. In other words, adding to the trouble of quarreling together with this other problem, was this other problem of the Canaanites and Perizzites. Um, sometimes we take too long to make a decision. Abraham decided, the Bible says in verse 8, uh, so Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Let's stop dragging on uh, this ongoing conflict that's coming up. Or what, uh, what seems to be working in the midst of, of all our prosperity and our blessing. Um, let's stop dragging on this conflict that we're having. Let's, let's put an end to it. And, and for people like myself, that's a hard thing. A lot, I mean, Abraham, in making that decision to bring an end to that uh, relationship between him and, and, and Lot. 
decided to be generous. And so that's another principle as you're working through those kinds of, of things in your life. Abraham says in verse 9, it's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Be generous as you're working through those things. Um, and, and, and sometimes uh, in the midst of that, there's, there's a little bit of pain. Uh, but if you're going to have... Um, uh, the start of something that's going to be uh, going to bless you for the future. Uh, sometimes pain is necessary, and the consequence of that decision, that very simple decision in Abraham's life to separate from Lot, um, brought about what I would call um, a God, uh, the second blessing for Abraham uh, in, in the book of Genesis, which is found in on verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from them. Look around from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you will see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could, go, could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. Sometimes after um, that, that ending, God brings about the true thing that he wants to work in your life. And I believe that Abraham was blessed by bringing that relationship to an end. And then as we look ahead to our time of communion, uh, we realize that Jesus had to bring an end to his earthly relationship with his disciples too. Uh, the disciples didn't want him to leave, him, leave them. They didn't want him to die. But Jesus realizing that without that particular ending, we wouldn't have the salvation that we have today. And so Jesus recognized this principle in his own earthly ministry, that he had to end that relationship, that he had to do what the Father had called him to do, which was to go and die on the cross of Calvary for us. So as we pray for the bread this morning, I want you to remember, uh, think about a couple of things, actually. Uh, consider the things that uh, in your life today that you need to have uh, to bring to an end, a conclusion to. Maybe that relationship with that person that is very toxic, that you just need to cut off. Maybe that thing in the closet that you just need to throw away. Or in the garage, I should say, that you just need to throw away. Uh, will you join me in prayer this time? Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to die so that we might live. To die an earthly existence so we can always have you in our hearts. Thank you for this bread that reminds us of your body being broken for us. Thank you for taking away the pain that comes with sin. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I love a good story. I love books. I love to read. I love to open up a new book and turn to that first page in the first chapter um, and read. I love to go to the movies and see a new film that I've never seen before. And there's something about sitting down and waiting for, uh, after all the, the previews and the opening credits, just to see that first scene that comes. And, you know, authors and um, filmmakers, they strive to capture our attention in that opening scene um, because it sets the tone for the entire film or the entire book that we're going to read. So I actually have a few first lines of films and, and books that I'd like to read to you. Um, and I, ho- I think they're pretty memorable. So if, if you recognize it, just shout it out. Um, and this is kind of a little bit of a movie f- uh, book trivia, okay? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars, okay, I heard it. We have Star Wars fans. Okay, I will tell you of William Wallace. Historians from England will... 
Braveheart, yes. <laughs> I didn't think I'd get through the whole one. Oh, this is for the English majors. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Good, A Tale of Two Cities. Another uh, uh, famous novel, Call Me Ishmael. Mommy Dick, good. We have some well-read people in this church. Okay, last one. A ghost rider. We have an unknown aircraft. Vector zero. Top gun, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. Okay, so as we, as we look and um, reflect upon this story and where we've come, I can't help but go back to the beginning um, and look at Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> it sets the stage and it builds the foundation for the entire book, for God's story, the greatest story ever told. So let's look at Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word barach is translated to create, and it's mentioned or used 48 times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, God is the subject. So it means that creation is a divine activity. Humans cannot create something out of nothing. Only God can. So when I read this opening line in God's book, in God's story, I realize God's telling us that all things, past, present, future, come from him. He alone can take nothing and create something. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So from dust came humanity, and God breathes his life into us. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You know, we have so many advances in technology these days and, and recycling techniques. So I don't know if you know this, but rubber tires, discarded rubber tires are used to create mats. Or if you go to a playground, that playground, that mushy flooring um, for kids. Um, and so uh, there's a new trend in the art world to take trash or recycled items and turn it into art. So let's look at a few of these pieces this morning. This is some old jewelry used to create uh, Queen Elizabeth of England. Uh, plastic toy beads and buttons are used to create Albert Einstein. Does anybody remember this iMac? I had it in purple. I was so, I thought it was so cool because I had the purple one. Um, but now it's been used to create a pet bed or a, an audio cassette tape. This is super vintage. I uh, used to create an image of the Beatles. Um, or the last one, the title of this uh, artwork is What Came First? <laughs> Obviously, the chicken or the egg. So if man can create art from these recycled products, how much more can God, the creator of all things, do with our lives? Whether it be mistakes we've made or broken relationships or wounds from situations where we've been hurt, God can take all of this and turn it into something beautiful. Our lives become works of art in his hands. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. This last week was the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, which took 800,000 lives of Rwandans in 180 days. 
Um, when I was at Fuller Seminary, I did some research on how Christian organizations and missionaries are, are using um, reconciliation techniques to bring healing and to share the gospel message in Rwanda. Um, and so this story um, is from one of those organizations and the work that they're doing. Um, but in the photo, you'll see uh, two individuals. On the left is Emmanuel. He was the perpetrator. And on the right is Alice, the survivor. Um, when Emmanuel and the, his fellow rebel soldiers came to Alice's village, um, they slaughtered everyone in the village. Um, he, uh, he cut off her arm with a machete. You'll see she doesn't have, or part of her hand is missing. Um, and he beat her so severely and left her for dead. He thought she was dead. His fellow soldier next to him killed her niece, her little, uh, little girl, and Alice's infant baby. And so Alice was laying on the ground for three days, and she, but she had survived, and she said she, every, she just continually prayed. She's a Christian, she, and she said, Lord, Lord, why? Why didn't you take me? Why am I still here? Um, and she realizes now, um, almost 20 years later, that it was because of Emmanuel and the work of healing and forgiveness um, that God is doing through them and to minister to other people. So Emmanuel um, served about six years in prison, and when he was released, he repented of what he had done and began to seek out the family members of people that he had killed. And he joined a a group that was led by a Christian organization that took together genocide killers and survivors, family survivors, um, and, and began to work on reconciliation. And he says he saw Alice when he got there, and he recognized her. He realized that was the woman that he thought he had killed. Um, it took several weeks um, because he didn't want to face her, but he realized he had to face what he had done and, and repent and ask for forgiveness. So one day he came before her, he knelt before her, he confessed and asked for her forgiveness. She says that it took two weeks. She thought about it, prayed about it, spoke with her husband, but she said, yes, I forgive you. And she said, I had prayed to God, just show me the person who cut me, and God did. Emmanuel came to me, he confessed, and he asked me to forgive him. And I knew I must. To have forgiven him, to have refused to forgive him when he was genuinely repenting would have been a sin. You know, it's only through God that such extreme healing and forgiveness can happen. And I know that this is such an extreme story. And so there may be hurts or broken relationships in our lives that it it may be unwise or even dangerous to try to uh, seek out that person. So I'm not saying that this can happen in all situations. But I think this story truly shows how only through God can we be made new in him. How we can become totally new creations. God created something when he started the, when he, at the beginning of time, he created something out of nothing and he takes our nothing and makes us something. So as we look ahead to Easter and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, I realize God created all things and makes all things new for a purpose. And that purpose is to have a relationship with us. You know, chapter 3 of Genesis says that God walked among the people, uh, the first humanity in the garden. He wanted, he wants to know us intimately. But our sin separates us from God. And so he created a new way for us to know him. And that was by giving his son. Only through his son can we be reconciled with him.
So as we celebrate this Easter, let's celebrate this gift of new life that he has given us. Would you pray with me? God, you created the world from nothing, and it is through you that we can become new creations. You've taken our lives, the good and the bad, and as a master designer, you fashioned us into a masterpiece. So as we enter into this next week and contemplate your suffering, we remember your sacrifice was to bring us back into relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Hey, wow, when uh, my kids saw that Lois had candy, they both perked up all of a sudden. You could hear them say, candy, candy, did she say candy? Hey, hey, those who made comments about my shirt, thank you very much. I feel like an Easter egg, just wanted you to know. So, but at least I make it look good. So, hey, I have been fascinated as we've gone through the story uh, about one thing that just strikes me about how God, the, the characters within the story, and you've got, we've, uh, Lois just went over the different characters and their stories, but how God has, is just, his attention is focused on them. They grab his attention. They also grab the attention of other people, the onlookers, the families, and the friends. And I think that's interesting because their reaction in their attention is different than God's. Now, I don't know about you, if you were kind of a squirrely kid or you were more of a quiet, shy kid or just a happy kid, but I remember for me, I was a kid who had liked attention and I was one of those squirrely kids. Now, I'm going to count to three. Actually, I'm going to ask you, squirrely, were you shy, were you a happy kid? I want you to turn to someone and say, I was a squirrely, I was a shy, or I was a happy kid. Pick one. You can be all three, I guess. One, two, three, really quick. Okay. How many squirrelies did we have? No, it's okay. We woke. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd raise your hand up quick. Okay, let me make sure this doesn't, same thing doesn't happen to me. Uh, well, I remember when I was uh, just a, a, a kid how, um, you know, I would get the attention of people, but I remember sometimes I'd get the wrong attention. And I knew when my dad started to take off his belt that I had got too much attention. But we had, a, we had a, a, an aunt named, uh, I'll call her Aunt Vivi, and we'd go to my uh, Grandma Lucy's house in East L.A. And I remember, now if you're Mexican or Mexican-American family, you know what I'm talking about. Aunt Vivi had the chancla. Now, for those of you who don't know the chancla, oh yeah, okay, some of you got it, okay. This chancla is a sandal, it's Spanish. But she had a way, man, when my, my three cousins and I, we were just play around, she could take that. I remember when she, we knew we were getting out of hand and she'd say, okay, boys, you better stop that or I'm going to get you. And so we would keep playing around in front of her, in front of the TV. Okay, you did it now. And you knew that when she reached down for the chancla, you were in trouble. Man, she had a way, she could pitch that thing and it was like the utility tool from Batman. It would boom, 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 hit us all in the head and it would boomerang around and she would put it on back on her shoe and she'd go, "Mm, mm, mm, that's right, okay, and she'd sit down. Now, okay, maybe I exaggerated just a little bit on that one. But you know, in the story, God, uh, these characters have God's attention. You know, it's interesting. It's not the attention like I just described, but let me walk through just a few so you can see a few of these characters so you can see how God, his attention is focused on them. Let's look at, the, at the, the story of Cain and Abel. We know that story, but you remember when Cain and Abel, remember Abel brought his offering to God and it says that God was pleased with his offering, not so much with Cain. So much to the point that Cain despised his brother and hated him. Isn't it amazing how God sees it one way and for another person, a family member, so much that he hated that he killed his own brother. Let me fast forward a little bit to the story. We know the story of Joseph. 
And we know there's a lot of things that happened to him. But again, as a slave, as he was sold into slavery, he was working for his, finally had worked up to a place where he was a little bit of, of a position of responsibility. And his boss, even as this, he worked for the, the boss's uh, family in the household, and even, even as he was there working for the boss, the boss's wife came along and said, hey, you know what, sleep with me. And what did he say? How could I do this and sin against who? God. Because he had God's heart already in him. See, it wasn't about the fact that he was a slave or that he hoped someday to be free. It was the fact that he belonged to God and he had God here no matter where he wasn't in prison. He wasn't a slave to Potiphar. I mean, he wasn't a slave to that master. He was a slave to God because in his heart, he was a servant to the almighty God. Let's fast forward a little bit to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember Ruth, where she followed her mother-in-law and she said, where you're God, where you go, I will go. And you're God will be my God. To the point that God had, she had God's attention. And you know what? She also had the attention of Boaz, right? And we know how that worked out. And they end up getting married and producing a beautiful child who ended up becoming part of the lineage that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's amazing how all those people had this amazing uh, amazing connection with God. Last one. We haven't got to it yet in the story, but the last story I want to share with you quickly is about Job. Excuse me, remember Job? He had everything going on for him, and God has having a conversation with uh, Satan, and he says, hey, man, check out my man, Job. He's a righteous dude, and God, uh, he just follows me. He loves me. What does Satan say? Oh, yeah, let me take everything out from under him. Let me rip everything away from his family, his wealth, everything that he owns, and watch what he does. God says, you know what, have at it, because I know who he is. I know in his heart who he belongs to. Satan takes everything away, right? And what does Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Say it with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Isn't that amazing? And yet, no matter what happens, nothing changes him and wavers. Okay, he makes a little bit, a couple of mistakes along the way. But for the most part, in general, his heart is for God. But remember his friends, they criticized him. Hey, you know what, man? You must have done something wrong. His wife even says, man, you've robbed us of our, of our retirement. You've taken away our kids because of that. We've lost our children. We've lost our home. We are penniless. And now look at your, that you're sick. Just curse God and die. And no, he won't do it. It's an amazing thing to me when people like that have God's, that's God's attention. You know why? Because it's their identity is connected to God. It's not about who they, what they have or who they're connected to or who they're married to or who their family is or the color of their skin or where they come from. It is all about Jesus Christ. It is all about God being in their heart. And that makes all the difference. You know, for as I think about this whole idea of just they knew their identity in him and that changes your attitude when you know you can rely on that, when you know you can trust in that. And that changes your behavior. You know, one of the things that I've learned, and many people have said it before, is that my belief determines my behavior. What I believe in my heart determines my behavior. Let me say it this way. Our beliefs determine our behavior. Say it with me. Our beliefs determine our behavior. Say it again. Our beliefs determine our behavior. One more time. Our beliefs determine our behavior. And so their behavior was not based on what they had, what they didn't have, but on who they were connected to, whose they were. Now, let me just end real quickly. Uh, um, uh, a couple years ago, actually, this September 15th, my wife and I, Jasmine, will be married for two years. Amen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
I've got to hurry because I only got a few seconds more. Uh, and so, um, but before we got married, I was talking to her and I said, you know what? And there's our kids right there. We, she has two beautiful daughters. We have two beautiful daughters. But before we got married, I said, I love you. I want to marry you. But can I do something? And she, of course, she said yes. Obviously, she said yes. But she, I said to her, can I ask the girls, Anna and Kalila, with a K, if I could marry you? She said, okay. So we had a great dinner one evening, and I asked the girls. I said, hey, girls, you know what? First of all, I wanted you to know that I love your mom so much, and I love you all so much, and I want to marry your mom. Oh, man, Anna started making plans already. Okay, I'm going to have this kind of dress, and I'm going to be a flower girl, and we're going to do this. And Kalila was the same, and they were having a great time talking about it. And then I said, it's because I love you all, and I want us to be family. Well, Anna just continued telling, uh, telling us about all the plans she had made, and Kalila became quiet. And she looked back at me, and she looked at mom. And then we stopped, and I said, Kalila, what's, what's the matter? And she said this, I thought we already were a family. You see, she had already identified it had nothing to do with the ceremony, although that was important to do. But she, in her heart, identified that the fact that we had already been family. And when you're part of that, your identity is driven by who you belong to. That is the most amazing thing that we have. That is our hope in God, our hope in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to worship you, to praise you. I thank you that we have an identity that is based on whose we are, not on who we are, what we have or what we do or last name or where we were born or where we come from or what we do for a living, Lord. I thank you that we can rest that hope and assurance and we can believe in you because of your son that you gave us to die for us on the cross. Amen.